We are so excited that you're about to listen to the Cultivate OKC podcast. The podcast is a product of the Cultivate OKC Venture Accelerator. Our hope is that Oklahoma City will become famous for an atmosphere of flourishing. We believe in a courageous and connected movement of entrepreneurs leading redemptive ventures will play an outsized role in that story. Today's episode is a chapter in that story. Now let's jump in. My name is Lance, and um, for our guests, what we're inviting you into today is uh, similar to what our fellows experience most of the times that we get together. Um, our program is mentor-driven. They'll, they'll, they'll interact with about 24, 25 mentors through the period of 16 weeks. And uh, generally, we'll do a panel just like we're doing today, um, generally with local mentors, and then following that panel and question and answer, then all of our fellows get one-on-one time uh, with these mentors and additional local mentors. So um, through the course of, of our 16-week deal, you just spend a lot of time talking to really cool, really smart people uh, about how to make your business or your, or your nonprofit venture better. And um, so that's one of the treasures. But one time through the experience, we bring people in from outside of our city. And that really serves a couple of purposes. Um, you know, one, it's fun to invite the community. Um, uh, two, it's fun for our fellows to see that, um, that our network extends throughout the nation and throughout the nations. Uh, but third, and maybe most importantly, there is a prophetic mojo that happens when people not from your city come to your city and interact with you and see things with fresh eyes and carry what they're seeing in their city and throughout the rest of the world, speaking of prophetic mojo, Clarence Hill, um, uh, and, and come, and so um, Peter and Chris just got finished writing a book. Did, you, did, did Tracy already talk about that? Um, it's incredibly encouraging, and um, it's interesting. We pray for our fellows every week, and this cohort, more than any other, has said, please just pray for rest, pray for peace, pray for encouragement, and that's exactly what Peter and Chris just spent um, a couple of years researching and writing is in the kingdom what does it look like when pioneers, entrepreneurs have vision and that vision runs into roadblocks and you hit places of fatigue and discouragement? How do you begin to climb out of that? And what are other modern examples and biblical examples um, that show us how to kind of work through those times of uh, where we feel like we've hit a wall? So uh, I'm almost all the way through it. It's amazing. Um, thank you guys for writing yeah. that. Um, thank you Coffee's for being here. here. So Peter and Chris are both with Hope International. Um, it is a gold standard of international development organizations. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, but they do work all over the world, mostly in micro-entrepreneurship uh, for development, um, all with a very strong um, Jesus focus and Jesus source. So um, welcome to you guys. Glad you're here. And then this is Melody Murray, sandwiched between these guys. Um, Melody now works for the Praxis Organization, who's our national partner. Um, they're an incredible organization trying to resource redemptive entrepreneurs all over the world. Um, but Oklahoma City is the first city-based partner, national partner, um, with Praxis to run a, an accelerator like Cultivate. Melody actually started the first one in Southeast Asia that part, partnered with, with um, Praxis when she was doing 
entrepreneurship um, and resourcing entrepreneurs throughout India and Southeast Asia. She began her career in big corporate um, consumer goods um, in spent some time in Northwest Arkansas, mm -hmm. and, um, um, but has de devoted most of her adult life to resourcing entrepreneurship for development. So we are pumped that you guys are here, and we're just going to get right into it. And uh, for those of you who are guests, this is a jam session, so I'm going to tee up one question for each of them, but then this conversation will go as far and as fast as we all take it uh, in the next hour. So, so don't be bashful. Write down your questions as things come up, but um, Peter, I'm going to start with you. Um, talk for a minute about what, what moment are we in post-COVID, uh, pending recession, global war, um, you know, um, maybe some fatigue, and, but maybe kind of rushing back to some new normal. What do you see as you look out over the world and, and the opportunity that there is for redemptive entrepreneurship in this moment? Or anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> One minute. That's, That's, <laughs> One minute. That's it. That's, yeah. I like how we start with the easy questions and uh, then get there. And I, I just want to reiterate one thing. Like, it, it really is exciting what is happening here. And hearing those stories of pitches, oh, man, we need more uh, of those types of entrepreneurs, more of those types of ventures. And truly, from the outside looking in, there is something special happening here in OKC. And uh, what an absolute privilege and honor to spend a little bit of time um, today. And uh, so our world, uh, we, we work in 17 countries around the world, and um, we have all been impacted by the last several years and by the pandemic. And I would say, though, we've not all been impacted equally. Um, and in the places that we serve, we serve in communities of poverty. And a stat that has not been widely circulated is that for as long as the United Nations has been keeping track of the percent of the world that lives in extreme poverty, that has been going down. The world has quietly but relentlessly been getting better year over year as measured by the percent of the world that lives in extreme poverty. And for the very first time in the 60 years that data has been collected, that number jumped up and 100 million people fell back into extreme poverty. That had never happened before. And those are in the places and communities where we serve. And um, when an economy shuts down, um, the micro entrepreneurs are hit uh, hard on that. So we have seen that. Uh, we have felt that. Uh, we have worked in these communities. And we've seen the very real way that those individuals in poverty have been really severely impacted. And then on top of that, uh, we work in Haiti. And uh, there was an assassination. Uh, of the president, uh, there was another earthquake, and we saw once again our friends being hit hard. Um, and then most recently, uh, Hope International was started in Ukraine, and when the invasion happened, uh, when I was watching CNN um, and uh, watching what uh, was happening, uh, the communities and cities that were being um, shared were ones that we have friends um, in and staff and colleagues. Um, and. And it has felt like this season, more than any other, has been a season of wave after wave, of challenge after challenge. And I, I think that's, in, in a, a sense, we've all been hit by that. There, there has been a lot of bad news, and let alone kind of 
within the church. There's been a lot of additional stories of scandal. And so what moment are we in right now? I think we're in a moment uh, where we have been barraged by bad news and by challenge. And I think this is a moment uh, for us to re-examine, like, where is hope? Um, where is hope in the midst of this moment in time where we are all feeling the challenge? And um, working with Chris and looking at stories from around the world uh, for the last couple years has been an absolute gift uh, to realize that in the midst of all of this, it really is, it truly is possible to still have a grounded and rooted hope, independent of circumstance, um, that is part of a different story, a greater story, and uh, the significance is not missed of today um, and what we think about today, uh, what we celebrate tomorrow, um, and what we celebrate on Sunday. It is not missed that that, that story, that good news, uh, that is a hope that, that holds. It, it truly does hold, even when it feels like the world um, is, is experiencing a whole lot of change and challenge. So, that's a, a, a long way of saying, what moment are we in? I think we are in a moment where there is a longing for hope mm-hmm. and a hope that we really do have. Mm-hmm. Quick follow-on, Peter. Why, quick follow-on, here's another big one. Why micro-entrepreneurship? Um, you know, you, you guys could be, could be using any one of a, a huge toolbox to impact people with the gospel in the developing world. Why have you chosen to work in that place where um, business meets development? It's exactly the, what we're seeing here. You, you look at the power of an entrepreneur that creates a venture, that provides value and service to the community, provides employment, provides economic opportunities, and then has the gift of generosity impacting the community. That is a leveraged investment. Um, And I believe that it's not just here in this room that there are entrepreneurs. There are entrepreneurs in every single country, in every single community. The difference is they've never been given that initial investment. They've never been given that that idea of hope and they bought into the lie of poverty that says your life is never gonna change. You're never gonna get out of this. This situation that your parents were in is a situation you're gonna be in, your kids are gonna be in. And we think that's just not true. God has given incredible gifts and abilities, and so investing in them, investing in their capacity, watching what they create, launch, and then watching the ripple effect uh, on their families and on their communities, uh, it is profound. So Mm -hmm. I I love to think about how do we make as big an impact as possible, and uh, you find entrepreneurs in those communities, you invest in them, that will always have a greater return than us coming in and trying to do for what others are very capable of doing for themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, Chris. By the way, this guy, uh, well, I didn't know you were a mountain biker too, which is just goes another place, but that's in the book. Uh, but he's just full of joy. Just a person that if you never met him, you'd be like, who's that guy that just walked in the room just spreading smile and, and love and joy all over the room. So oh, thanks for being like that. That's right. um, <laughs> um, but maybe... Maybe in the, um, um, in the kind of Geno Wickham traction way of thinking about things, if maybe it would be fair to say that Peter's a visionary and you're an integrator. Mm-hmm. But you guys have built an organization and a culture that really is world class um, in terms of the culture that you've built, the leadership team that you have, uh, the, the board relationships. Uh, you guys literally 
wrote the book on, on board relationships. Mel's our best board member. Oh, <laughs> come on now. And Mel's on the board. Yeah. Um, board member. T t talk, about, talk about building a team and a culture around, around a vision. And, uh, and as you think about kind of the secret sauce of Hope International, what are some of the things that, that, that come to mind in that vein? Yeah. Well, thanks. And again, this is just an honor to be here. Such a joy. I think one of the things that's really been foundational for Hope has been a culture of assuming that we haven't gotten it right. Uh, our founder, um, Jeff, is an entrepreneur, a home builder, and started Hope in Ukraine 25 years ago, as Peter talked about. Uh, but he, he describes very humbly reading the book Toxic Charity. Mm -hmm. uh, some of you maybe have heard of that book. You can get the idea just from the title. But he describes reading that book and feeling like it was a memoir about the ways that he had gotten things wrong. So, you know, reading through all the things that we have gotten wrong in charity, he felt like it was describing the things that defined his earliest years in trying to launch Hope International. And actually, it was a pastor in the town of Zaporozhye, Ukraine, which is a town that no one had ever heard of until two months ago, uh, but the home to the largest nuclear power plant in all of Europe, a uh, place that's under siege and attack right now. That was where Hope was born uh, 25 years ago. And as a pastor that we're still working with today in that community who told Jeff that all of his early attempts to try and help were creating more problems than they were solving. So he was coming with free stuff, giving it away, food, medical supplies, clothing, and just indiscriminately handing it out in the town of Zaporozhye. And you know, the pastor was like, I appreciate your intentions here, but we've got market vendors who are trying to sell things and you're giving away things with flooding the market with free goods. We've got people showing up at church just to get the free stuff. It's creating entitlement. Like, please don't come back. And, and Jeff had the humility to hear that and respond, not with defensiveness, but with acceptance of what that pastor shared with him. It was like, all right, we did, you know, we're messing this up. How can we do it better? And, and that posture of just assuming that we probably aren't doing it perfectly and a willingness to hear from those that we're serving and respond and change and adapt I think has been really foundational from like the very beginning with those 12 entrepreneurs we began serving in Zaporozhye, Ukraine in 1997, all the way to today, now you know, having served uh, millions of entrepreneurs over the course of our 25 year history, mm -hmm. has been a posture of listening and responding to the feedback that we're hearing from those that we're serving. So I think that's been a really foundational kind of value of hope, of, of that humility that really uh, came from our founder. And I, I do wanna say like, Mel is on our board and she's amazing. And we have a board that really incentivizes hope to admit mistakes and failures. Mm. Uh, and that's been a real gift. Mm. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Mel, you, um, I mean, you've really been a pioneer in, in this work and in, in particularly in uh, empowering women entrepreneurs. I want you to feel, you know, we, we want to hear more about your heart for women. Um, uh, but you have an opportunity through your new role at Praxis to kind of step step back out and look at what's happening in mm -hmm. ecosystem building all over the world uh, for redemptive entrepreneurship. What are the opportunities in this in this moment? What are the opportunities specifically for cities? Yeah. Thanks, Lance. Mm. And honestly, I almost got choked up just then because he described my job, and I, you just spoke it to me in a way that. Reminded me again, I feel like the luckiest girl in the world. I'm um, really honored to get to work with Praxis and folks like these guys right now and see 
what feels like an opportune time in the world where just this sort of collision of the church needing new hope and mm. new freedom uh, with the world needing more solutions. And uh, we're seeing a rise of entrepreneurs all over the world and especially Christian entrepreneurs mm. around the world and even the church around the world deciding um, to do away with this secular and sacred divide and to decide to take our place as co-creators of God's story around the world. And I feel so mm. grateful um, just to get to see that happen and find ways to support groups like you all. Just be encouraged that there's groups like this going on all over the world. We've already found mm. about 45 mm. young uh, sort of small accelerators at a city level going on internationally right now um, that are all centering around the, the redemptive framework and beginning to have this new theology of work and entrepreneurship that is just igniting a real exciting movement. We don't use that word very all, but I feel like it's a movement. Mm. I've been <laughs> overwhelmed with um, just the amount of work that God's up to all over the world with entrepreneurs like yourselves. So as you meet and as you work together, be reminded that there's women and men all over the world um, with a similar drive and passion. And just think uh, as we take our place as co-creators, as we begin to form ventures that are redemptive and, and really striving to go over that redemptive edge, just think of the, the amazing kingdom work that can get done. It's pretty exciting. Mm. And Mel, when, when you, um, what are some of the common themes that are beginning to emerge where, where you see movement and energy um, in, in those places and, and among those groups? Yeah, I, I see communities wanting to be on mission and take action. They're, they're somewhat tired. I, I, this doesn't offend anybody. They're a little tired of the small group mentality of just patting each other on the back in the same class or caste or system and wanting to truly be on mission and take action. Mm. And we're seeing it. Um, we talk a lot at Praxis about a flywheel and this idea that Jim Collins used to state of having steps that you take that build momentum. And we're seeing even cities feeling like we don't want to just do the same thing. We want to actually do things that create momentum in our city for change and restoration. Uh, so that's definitely a theme. Mm -hmm. We're definitely seeing a rise in, in female entrepreneurship, especially in the developing world, a desire for, for young moms to take on uh, the problems in their communities with a lot of gusto and drive um, and feeling really empowered to do so. Um, we're also seeing, I think, a heart for successful entrepreneurs to give back. So that's another brilliance in, in an accelerator format, um, especially a citywide accelerator, is accelerators provide an opportunity for funders, founders, thinkers to all unite together in, on, on a mission and to actually create those, those tr sort of trio relationships that are really needed for entrepreneurs to thrive. So we're seeing funders also take their place in that ecosystem all over the world. Mm. Mm, that's exciting. We, we've spent almost 17 years in, in different parts of Asia, and uh, we realized pretty quick, as, as did these guys, that the best use of our time was going to be going and finding the movers and the shakers and just equipping them. Uh, best use of my time ever. And so uh, in our time in the Tibetan Autonomous Region, in North India and Northern Thailand, more than half of the fellows going through the accelerator programs there are women. I, I think, obviously, I've... Uh, an eye out for, for women, but they are in many of these communities, especially in the developing world, they're the ones uh, that are taking more innovative approaches and are risking for their families. Uh, you will see a lot of them driving community efforts and change and the ones starting the new nonprofit efforts. So 
Uh, it's also, I'm finding at least in the areas that we're working in Asia, when one begins to take a risk, the others will follow. So it really only takes a couple female leaders in a, in a community to step out and take a risk. And then, as Peter was saying, they're also the ones that t tend to give back to the next generation. So a lot of the fellows that have gone through our accelerator programs turn right back around and not only mentor, but are starting funds and giving back into their communities for the next round of redemptive entrepreneurs. So I have women that have started um, all sorts of businesses. I have, I have some really incredible females running a kombucha business that's taking over India right now. They just got a huge Starbucks nationwide deal. Uh, so that employs about 70 people in, in Delhi. It went from mm. wow. one to 70 in probably two and a half years amidst COVID, wow. which is fascinating. Um, there's, there's a leather business that's doing um, sort of vegan leather that's really begun to take off in northern Thailand. I have a woman doing a micro-enterprise uh, coffee business that's now getting into teas in different parts of Asia, so all sorts of businesses. And then some nonprofits, of course. Um, there's quite a few doing a uh, foster system in Asia, which is sort of unheard of, so a, a, a group of sisters that actually has decided to kind of take Asia by storm with the option of fostering, and that hasn't, hasn't been something in their culture. And so, yeah, some fascinating women. I'll, I'll start by saying I think whenever I, I feel like a question is too big, I try and think about it in the smallest way possible. Mm. And, and so for my work, so I lead our development and marketing efforts at Hope. And you know, one of the things that's been so surprising is how often the the least done action in a in a space is probably the one that is most profound and and the thing that's most aligned with God's heart. So again, one small example: uh, we started I don't know five or six years ago on Giving Tuesday. This is the day that you get a hundred emails from nonprofits that you've ever been involved with. Anyone ever gotten those emails or uh, letters? And so we just said, like, what would, what would it look like to do Giving Tuesday in a redemptive way? Like, what would redemptive entrepreneurship not just look like in a global level, but, like, what would it look like on this small little thing, which is Giving Tuesday? Like, what if we just gave it away to our friends? So instead of Hope sending an email out to our 50,000 subscribers around the you know, world and saying, like, give to Hope, what if we just gave it away to organizations that we loved? And, and so we've started doing that, and now I've done that for five, five or six years. And, you know, wouldn't you know it, it's like our most opened email. It's like the, the email that people love the most, talk about all the time. So if, if we can apply that, the redemptive framework, to every aspect, the small, starting with the smallest things, how we hire people, how we fire people. You know, one other example I'll share from our HR department is that we do surveys with, and, and we do focus groups with candidates who get declined for jobs at Hope. Mm -hmm. And again, it's just a small little like thing. Mm -hmm. But when we decline someone for a job, this is a moment where someone is really disappointed mm -hmm. in Hope. And we wanna, we wanna treat that moment with real mm -hmm. grace and mm -hmm. kindness mm -hmm. yeah. and wanna be the very best at declining people for jobs that they really want and need. Mm -hmm. um, so again, big, big question. I think maybe the, at least for me, the way to, that's the integrator in me, but it's like, how do we take, take this massive question to make it really small? That's good. I'll do the big macro, or at least how we'd answer real quick at Praxis, because it's, first of all, I think it's a journey. I don't know if I would 
have enough gumption or pride to tell you that I'm a redemptive entrepreneur. That's a big mm -hmm. statement, right? So we always believe there's a journey toward being more redemptive in small decisions or in large decisions. And for us, the term redemptive is actually an economic term prior to being more spiritual in nature. So it, it just simply means to buy back or to pay a debt. Um, and so for us, that term really makes sense. It, it, it's something where something is needed to be restored, something's broken and needing restoration. And in order for something to be restored, typically, it, it needs someone to sacrifice in order to fix it. I can't restore myself, right? If I'm needing restored, I would need somebody to come sacrifice and actually help me reach restoration. So redemptive for us is creative restoration through sacrifice in our leadership as a, as a business owner, in our strategy, the, how we do things and why we do things as well through our operations. And so we talk a lot about journeying toward redemptive entrepreneurship, not necessarily being redemptive entrepreneurs. Um, and the humility that comes with that. But typically, yeah, it has to be humble, right? But typically our ventures are addressing problems and trying to fix them, um, for sure. So. Good can I have one, can I? Mm. I'm working on it. That's the elevator pitch, right? <laughs> Go add. No, the only thing I was gonna add is also in terms of the actual product or service, yeah. that we create um, as well. And uh, we didn't really talk about Mel's uh, company, Join, that she mm. started, but making uh, bags and uh, truly like etched in excellence. Mm. It, 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 is, it is a superior product uh, mm. that also is part of that as well. So it's not just the way that we do it. It's not just the, but it's actual, the good service that we provide and saying mediocrity within a redemptive frame is not okay. Um, we, we should hold ourselves to the very highest standard. Mm -hmm. And if you don't already, I'm looking at some bags. I don't see any join bags, but uh, I mean, you gotta check it out here. I'm just saying, yeah. Caleb's well aware. Yeah, Caleb knows the join. Yeah, I love it. Chris. So you I'll tell you what we're doing at Praxis, but um, I'm the first person sort of hired for more of an international as well as a domestic expansion uh, decision and just looking to scale city by city and provide resources for each city, much like you have here. That's just not just content, but providing actually templated approaches to how to, how to actually get, get a movement or an ecosystem together in your city for entrepreneurs, how to find the right mentors, how to develop them the, the right um, situations and experiences, and then the content behind it as well. So there's there's quite a bit of work going on in that and just to see a replication at a city level, um, just to make sure that we're able to support entrepreneurs like yourself. I think there's a lot of, I mean, these guys are doing more international. So two quick thoughts, and, um, and actually, Chris's story is in the book as well. Um, so Chris, thank you for your example here. Mm. Um, and Chris. Yeah, yeah, Chris Brewster. Um, so thank you for allowing us to share your story um, as well, an example, which is so, so powerful. Um, two places of resources. One is the largest supporter of Hope International's mission, um, by far, uh, are the families that we serve. Um, and I love that. I love that. Even though these are communities of poverty, as entrepreneurs are 
are working their way out of poverty, they are contributing in this model that becomes self-sufficient over time. And so let's not look at any community and not look at what they have and what they can give um, in their communities. And I think for a long time, that was just not even part of the equation um, on that. So that's a huge piece is allowing and inviting the joy of generosity to be a global journey that we are all yeah. on, not just uh, one way flow from one place to another. So I think yeah. that's huge piece of our model and where the resources come from. The second piece is I think there is a greater alignment um, in terms of the conversation of the entrepreneurs that have experienced um, what it looks like to go through this redemptive frame and then to connect uh, with others. And my guess is if you look at the mentors that are participating in today that are here, my guess is if you ask every single one of them, hey, who invested in you? My guess is they have a very clear answer of individuals that whether that was time, talent, or treasure, they invested uh, in them. And I think there's this enormous pay it forward idea of entrepreneurs that have experienced success know that God has blessed them mm -hmm. and given them and connected them and resourced them. And then that desire to find those same individuals to be part of a global conversation around who are those other entrepreneurs that just have never had someone invest in them and mm -hmm. connect there. So yeah. I think it's within the communities and then it's also an exciting kind of global ecosystem of entrepreneurs investing in entrepreneurs uh, around the world as well. I mean, we, we just heard reviews of people that have stayed at uh, the properties that you have. And uh, to me, the simple answer is, what, what is at the core? Um, and I think that, uh, what did Jesus say? You will, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Um, what is the greatest commandment? To love God and love your neighbor. There is... There is this idea that love, um, love of God, love of neighbor is at the very core of who we are as people. And I think to me, if you keep that at the center, when individuals are coming in, their story is they're coming in for a funeral and this is gonna be their chance to grieve together. And the artwork, um, the way the sheets are there, the way that we are not going to have them have to think about any aspect mm -hmm. of this experience, um, you are loving them, which actually leads to a level of excellence. Mm -hmm. So I think there's maybe just going upstream on this for all of us to say, what does it look like uh, for us to excel in doing good? What does it look like for us to excel in saying, I want you mm -hmm. to feel the love of Jesus Christ as you experience this home? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that guides us there. I think that guides us to excellence. Yeah. yeah. I think you're accountable to your customers in ways that are potentially unique because of the type of business that you're in, uh, where if someone has a terrible experience or a great experience, you're, you're going to hear about it. <laughs> and, and I think all of our organizations have opportunities to listen well to the, the mm. customers that we're serving. It's a lot more difficult for an organization like Hope. Like We aren't seeing reviews in the same way that you are, but we are looking at client retention for our microfinance programs around the world? Are we delighting our customers and listening to them well? Uh, we do an annual staff uh, survey through Best Christian Workplace. It's anonymous and it's an opportunity for us to, to hear what our staff are really 
upset about, what they're really excited about, where do mm. we have opportunities to improve? And we're paying a lot of money to BCWI, the uh, organization that manages that survey, to benchmark us against our peers. And that, that process is often really painful. Mm. Uh, but I do think that's an act of love, is to listen to those that we're attempting to serve and then responding to it. It's not just mm. doing the survey, it's then reporting back to the staff, here are the three themes that we heard. Uh, these are the, the things that we know are really frustrating to the team, and here's how we're going to respond as a leadership team mm. to that. Um, so I think as organizations that are you know, etched by excellence and doing things that are you know, gold standard, we should be the leaders in having the humility to listen mm. uh, to those that we're serving, both staff and customers, donors. Love that. Good. some of that that's like the ongoing stories of mm -hmm. impact like the community I shared about in Ukraine mm -hmm. you know I mean those stories are happening all the time that embody hopes values and mission uh, the old stories of over 25 years I mean that it's kind of like going to the old guard those that were around in the beginning and those that have been around for a long time and saying like what were the key moments and then you know in some ways like heat mapping the stories that come up the most that best illustrate yeah. it and then we're yeah we're actually writing them down and then in some cases videoing the people who were a part of it and mm. attempting to catalog capture and retell go ahead you first i was just gonna um make a plug um <laughs> you know so chris and i uh wrote a book called mission drift and it was how organizations drift from the founding purpose and passion and the examples of organizations that have drifted are, there are many and many, many, in many ways it was a discouraging <laughs> process. Um, and yet uh, it was great because then you see the ones that stood out that did not drift. And one of the key components of that is the power of story and especially with the founding generation, mm. you, you're, you, you, you assume everyone knows the story, Chris, about why you founded it and yet Fast forward a few years, and Assumption is a very shaky foundation to build a mission-true organization. Mm. Um, so I'm doing a plug for you. Um, and what you do in the art of storytelling, especially capturing the core intent, the why, not just the what, but why do we exist? Yeah. Um, and any organization that has not captured that with that founding generation, I think is missing a valued, valued resource. Use it in your onboarding. Use it in your the way that you tell your story. And I don't know how many of those stories you do, but focusing on that why and capturing it, I yeah. think is a, 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 a critical story uh, that is not being told enough. And as a result, organizations are not knowing, but they're drifting from the core. Two things. One of the things we say in this book that Peter probably wrote, instead, uh, we, we long to use our creative gifts to tell the truest version of our story rather than the grandest. And one of the things that we've been working on within our Asian cohorts is just encouraging people to tell their own stories and even helping them craft those but not telling them for them. And we've just started having them video some of their own stories. I mean, they have all... They've got smartphones everywhere in the world. They've got the ability. Yeah. So just also giving them practical tools to help them share their own stories. And we've got some videographers that are up and coming in our, in our Asian communities that we're really proud of. So, I think one other principle I'd add on that, and I, so I just got back from a two-week trip to Paraguay with my family. 
and had the opportunity to be in Paraguay. And this goes back to Chris, your question a little bit, but in Paraguay, Hope's partner Diaconia receives 50% of their funding from non-Paraguayan donors and 50% from Paraguayan donors, so donors within the, the country that they're serving, uh, within Asuncion, the capital where, they, where they're located. And one of the most powerful moments I've had in my 16 years at Hope was being at a fundraising banquet in Asuncion, in Paraguay, for Diaconia, and we were there with, with donors that give financially, the staff that do the work mm -hmm. each day of equipping and serving the entrepreneurs, and then the entrepreneurs themselves that are served oh, uh, were there. And one of the coolest moments, again, mm -hmm. in my career at Hope was getting to watch two um, videos that were filmed about entrepreneurs who were in the room. Mm -hmm. And so they got to see mm -hmm. their story Mm -hmm. And they were standing there beside the, the founder of Diaconia, watching yes. their story being told to this, you know, 130 uh, powerful people, you know, influential leaders in their city, and the pride and the joy that came with that. And what an interesting accountability mm -hmm. that is. Like, if we all had that perspective and how mm -hmm. we tell our stories, that, like, any mm -hmm. stakeholder could be watching it and be proud to see the way that they were yeah. portrayed like that's a really strong, I think it's a strong indicator of telling a story with real honesty and integrity. That's good. I'll do the big macro, or at least how we'd answer real quick at Praxis, because it's, first of all, I think it's a journey. I don't know if I would have enough gumption or pride to tell you that I'm a redemptive entrepreneur. That's a big mm -hmm. statement, right? So we always believe there's a journey toward being more redemptive in small decisions or in large decisions. Mm -hmm. And for us, the term redemptive is actually an economic term prior to being more spiritual in nature. So it, it just simply means to buy back or to pay a debt. Um, and so for us, that term really makes sense. It, it, it's something where something is needed to be restored, something's broken and needing restoration. And in order for something to be restored, typically it, it needs someone to sacrifice in order to fix it. I can't restore myself, right? If I need him restored, I would need somebody to come sacrifice and actually help me reach restoration. So redemptive for us is creative restoration through sacrifice in our leadership as a, as a business owner, in our strategy, the, how we do things and why we do things as well through our operations. And so we talk a lot about journeying toward redemptive entrepreneurship, not necessarily being redemptive entrepreneurs, um, and the humility that comes with that. But typically, yeah, it has to be humble, right? But typically our ventures are addressing problems and trying to fix them, um, for sure. The principles that, in our research of organizations for previous books that we've worked on, that we found is, is not just true for organizations today, but we see it in scripture, that we are at our core storytelling people. Mm. And one of the best ways I think to ensure that the, the things that you care about are passed on and are you know, infectious within an organization are the mm. stories that we tell and retell. Mm. So at Hope, you know, one of the ways that we've done that is we've sort of codified our core stories and we find as many ways as possible to tell and retell those mm -hmm. stories that exemplify the things that we think are most important about Hope's work. Mm -hmm. And so that's true for new, new staff orientation, mm -hmm. it's true for our staff meetings, it's true for our annual staff retreat. We're just saying, these are our core stories and we're gonna share them and reshare them and reshare them and reshare them. Mm -hmm. And this is the story and here's what it illustrates. Here's the story and here's what it illustrates. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, that's 
in your business, I, I would imagine you have stories like that, which, mm -hmm. I mean, you shared your story of your mom, right? Um, and there's, there's so much power in that. But there are other stories like that, I'm sure, have been inflection points in the business that have enabled you to grow or expand in new ways. So finding ways to make those stories part of the organizational mm -hmm. kind of uh, rhythms and routines, I think, is a really powerful place to start. I'm sure you're doing that already, but that would be one, one thought. Peter also wrote most of this, by the way. It's called the Redemptive Nonprofit Playbook, and it outlines a lot of the principles that Hope and other nonprofits really align by. So that's one, one thing. But I, I'll also say in, in New York at, at Praxis, we have a group of people that have kind of committed to what we call ORIs, Opportunities for Redemptive Innovation in our world, in our country. And those are starting to be deployed out even at a city level through people like Lance and others that want to start an ecosystem for redemptive nonprofit and for-profit businesses to actually get together, define the, the opportunities for redemption in their city, and then tackle those ventures together. So we are seeing, seeing those begin to start. Um, we actually have a summit coming up in May where we'll be meeting. We've got 17 cities coming together around those ORIs. And really, a lot of them are tackling systemic issues like you're talking about in their city. So I think it's, it's a mix of things. It's having the imagination to dream up a solution to a problem, and then it's having entrepreneurs willing to sit at the table and say, how could we tackle that? So that's my short yeah. answer. We want to take a quick moment to thank our partners, Praxis Labs out of New York and Flourish OKC. Praxis is a creative engine for redemptive entrepreneurship supporting founders, funders, and innovators motivated by their faith to love their neighbors and to renew culture. Flourish OKC is a collection of experiences, storytelling, and educational exchanges that explore value they want to see cultivated in Oklahoma City, including education, restorative justice, and resettling refugees. Cultivate OKC would not exist without our amazing partners, and we thank them. Now let's jump back into the podcast. I mean, the core model methodology is built on relationships, and some people call the work that we do uh, trust banks. Um, and the initial kind of methodology was a group of individuals that could not access financing from the normal channels, and then they receive individual investments from Hope International, but with a group guarantee, meaning that if you don't repay, we've said we will cover your payment for that week. So that level of accountability requires a depth of relationship and ongoing communication to know, hey, if my business starts to tank, mm -hmm. you all have an incentive to say, what can we do to help Peter <laughs> on that? Because if he defaults, that means we're going to be on the hook to help him out on that. So it is a model that is based on trust and relationship, and we're vouching for each other um, on that. Um, mm -hmm. and. I guess the, 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 the takeaway for me is that system requires a regularity of meeting every week or every other week, meeting together, 
And during that time, praying for each other, supporting each other, doing scripture together, and like we are invested in each other. Mm. And while I don't think you are all investing financially, um, what if you actually did see that same level of uh, investment uh, in each other's enterprises? And whether it's this group or whether someone else, who are the people that you are going to do life with? And there's this Burundian proverb that says, you'll never make it through the dry season on your own. And if you are trying to build your venture um, on your own without a group of people that know you and love you and are going to speak truth to you, um, I just don't think you're going to make it through the dry season. That mm. not if it comes, but when it comes um, on that. So I guess that would be the big piece is it takes time, it takes place, um, it, it costs something to you uh, to keep showing up in those relationships. But oh, is it worth it um, in those moments uh, when the dry season comes? I love that you asked what we can learn. And um, first time today, but I can tell when I get real passionate about something because my palms start getting sweaty and my heart starts racing. <laughs> I just came back from over a decade of living in Asia and the depth of community that my husband and I and our kids experienced was otherworldly. And now I'm back in middle America, Kansas City, where I was born and raised, haven't lived there for 25 years. And I'm assessing, honestly, assessing, why do we sometimes struggle here with community? I learned so much over there, and I'll tell you, I'm, I think I'm figuring out some of those ingredients and humbly sharing this, because I haven't figured it out in the States either. But if you're meeting together regularly and you're in community and, and you're in a small group or a group like this, wonderful, keep doing that, right? Study scripture, wonderful, keep doing that. I can see these elements are here, but the one element I think we've missed, and, and it, it's, it's maybe even a deterrent to depth of community, is comfort. We have too much of it, and we don't have desperation. We aren't going to the margins. We're not choosing to do things that are hard together, really hard. In my community in India, they had a desperation. They needed each other. They were working together on something so hard, trying to pull people out of addiction and out of being ostracized by their community and out of poverty. And that community, in action together, choosing to go into tough places, choosing to be redemptive because they were choosing to go to the dark places together. They were choosing to go to the brokenness. You know, I like the story of the wedding feast. We all know it. There's a reason why that guy was kept saying, go to the margins. Those people have time to be at this wedding feast, right? The others are too busy managing all their assets and too busy throwing their own parties. The party that I'm about, the feast I'm about, will always include those on the margins that will come. And I miss it so bad. The only thing I know to do in KC, start meeting with wonderful people like you all and then start working on something hard together. And I guarantee you the depth of community will just, just skyrocket. So I hope you don't mind me sharing that. Write that down. <laughs>
created in his image to do good in this world. And as sons and daughters of the Most High King, we get a direct line to his innovation and his intuition, to his wisdom, to his goodness and his kindness. And so I think what you could do for Praxis is honestly be formed deeply and keep going out into the world with new imagination in your context, in your city. Around for 25 years, started in, as I shared, in Zaporozhye, Ukraine. And I do think that my, my initial response to the to question was like, well, Ukraine. And, and we don't necessarily need a ton more financial support because of the crazy generosity of our supporters over the last two months to the, the specific crisis in Ukraine. But to become an advocate for the ways God's people are responding to the crisis in Ukraine, I think is an opportunity for all of us in this room. And Peter has written some really amazing blogs that you could find at his website. Uh, about the church responding to this crisis, uh, both in Ukraine and, and across the border. We have this, because of our 25-year history, we have this like front row seat mm -hmm. to churches throughout the region who are turning their sanctuaries into dormitories, who are turning their homes into communes, and just welcoming in refugees from all over. One of the most powerful examples of that came from the Roma community that Hope served in. So the Roma people in Eastern Europe, and specifically in Ukraine, are ostracized uh, community, very uh, insulated from the rest of Ukraine, uh, descendants from India, uh, living in these communities and often held at arm's length by the Ukrainian people. And when the invasion happened, and we had started working in the Roma community a few years ago, uh, and when the invasion happened, people started moving west, and some of the churches that we've been working with in the Roma community in western Ukraine have begun opening up their churches and their homes to uh, families that are now displaced refugees in their own country. And so these are people that were once ostracized uh, who are now welcoming and housing uh, their, their neighbors, in some cases their neighbors that had ostracized them. Uh, and so yep. telling their stories of how God's people in surprising places are responding to crisis, I think is one of the best ways that we can mm. respond right now to this moment and sort of shining a light even amidst this terrible thing that's taking place in Russia or in, in Ukraine at the you know at the invasion of Russia. Um, the the way God's people are responding in crisis is truly like the, the body of Christ at work at our very best. And to play on that, in in terms of truly being the body of Christ at our best, I'd say for praxis, like at a city level, the thing you guys could do the most is just what I feel like I'm trying to do every day is being formed more into looking like my father, right? Like as entrepreneurs, as Christian entrepreneurs, the ability that we have to drive culture in our cities, if we take our mandate seriously of being creators, created in his image to do good in this world. And as sons and daughters of the most high king, we get a direct line to his innovation and his intuition, to his wisdom, to his goodness and his kindness. And so I think what you could do for Praxis is honestly be formed deeply and keep going out into the world with new imagination in your context, in your city. That's good. I mean, so really? Uh, all right, yeah, I mean, so the, the quick story uh, is uh, my wife and I started our marriage in Rwanda, and uh, we 
got to go and visit the uh, gorillas um, on, on a regular basis, got to become friends with the Minister of Tourism. And on our final trip, um, when we were about to come back to the US for graduate school, uh, we were visiting the Sousa group. So there were 39 gorillas all around us. And I mean, no bars, you're, you're like literally there with the gorillas in the mist. It's on the volcanoes. Um, and uh, we were there and while we were there, um, I had turned my back uh, to the silverback, um, which is not appropriate. Um, As we uh, know now. We, I didn't know that at the right. time right. on that. And uh, there was a female gorilla that was nursing a very young, um, and so I was up on a little bit of a hill, um, and the gorilla, the silverback, decided it was time to make sure everyone knew who was king of the jungle. Um, so he charged over to me, he grabbed me um, and started running away, dragging me behind him. Um, and uh, he let me go and stood up over me and beat his chest to make sure that he knew that uh, I knew he was the king. And I was glad to say, yes, you are um, at that moment. Uh, that, and uh, the craziest thing, too, is uh, we were there with uh, my wife and, and a friend, uh, but then there also was a, a French photographer. Um, and so several months after this, I get mailed um, a Perry Match magazine, like People magazine for France, and they had sold the pictures to Perry Match, and so I am a centerfold in a French magazine um, <laughs> of me getting dragged away, and I'm happy to share the article for anyone that is interested. But so you were fine. That's the story, you and yes, hurt. I was fine, um, and um, my wife wanted to leave at that point, but I was like, no, we paid for an hour. Like, this is, <laughs> let's keep doing it. The, the thing I've, I, I've heard Peter share this story over 16 years of working together many times. The thing I've never asked, but I'm now asking, is why Ooh. the French photographer wasn't helping at all. Like, he just was, he like, was. Documenting, he was documenting your documenting. death. Yes. Documenting your That's death. That's helpful, so we don't yeah. think he's lying. Well, yeah. I mean, it's great to have the pictures, but he could have thrown the camera at the gorilla or something. But. So, the, and in the article, he made me sound like an idiot, like, on that. So, um, I'm not, I'm not a big fan uh, uh, of that guy, <laughs> but I am glad to have the pictures. Uh, no, so. I think, I mean, I do think being in, in a place where you can be fully transparent. I mean, I, I have this group of guys that I've met with once a month for the last seven years, and we spend two and a half hours together. Uh, each person gets 30 minutes, and you share, like, top of the fold what's happening in your life, and then the other four guys just ask questions. So there's no preaching or, or challenging, or it's just asking questions and then praying. And I think having people who you don't work with, who aren't family with mm -hmm. uh, in a proper way, but who mm -hmm. are willing to speak truth to you, to listen to you, to hear you, and to walk yep. with you over time yeah. is so grounding. Uh, and I think yeah. it really helps to, yeah. to create those places like it sounds like you and your husband experienced. Mm -hmm. I just think it's really important. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so that was an amazing weekend or moment. How do you carry forward that community? Uh, for you personally as a mm -hmm. leader, I think there's a difference. I'd, I'd argue that there is like, an important step for you personally to have that, as well as family to have that, to be able to like walk through life together. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's the first thing that came to mind. No, that's good. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Cultivate OKC podcast. 
We are committed to helping everyone in OKC flourish, not just the privileged, connected, or credentialed, but everyone. That is why we exist, to nurture and multiply that movement. If you're an entrepreneur of a nonprofit or a for-profit and would like to learn more about the Cultivate Venture Accelerator, go to www.cultivate.city for more information. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode of Cultivate OKC.